It is drawn from the psalm which we opened our worship with, Psalm 146. When one looks through the, the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah, when you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you're really very hard-pressed to find good kings. Uh, mostly, they are described at the beginning of their reign with this formula. He reigned such and so years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then, if his mother was a particularly wicked person, you'll oftentimes hear about her. His mother was thus and so, uh, and the chronicler is letting you know he was raised badly. And that's most of them. That is most of the kings. He ascended the throne at thus and such a year. He ruled for thus and such a time. He reigned in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And again and again and again, that plays out. But that's not the whole list. If you begin to look at all of the kings, there are exceptions. Arguably, King David was the best of them and yet we know his many faults and sins. But he was a man after God's own heart, and he is held up very highly. There were uh, moments in Solomon's reign which were spiritually glorious, although he ends up turning to idolatry and becomes a snare to the people. uh, There were positive things under his reign. Uh, We could speak of Jehoshaphat, who, according to the Scripture, as far as I know, was not known for jumping. He was a very good king. Uh, There was uh, Hezekiah, who, though his wisdom fails him a time or two, is actually put forward in a very positive light. Uh, There was Uzzah, and there was Asa, both of whom kind of crash and burn at the end, but for most of their reign, it's very positive. And then there is the very curious account of King Josiah. He is mentioned in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, and uh, he, is, he is held up as a very good king. Turning to 2 Chronicles 34, this is how we meet him in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. Now, commentators on King Josiah like to emphasize how young he was when he ascended the kingship. Uh, Eight years old is pretty young. Um, You would think that they would not do a good job. Now, he's not the youngest of them. Uh, Joash becomes king at seven. But still, eight years old, that's kind of significant. And then, when we begin to read about this young person's reign, uh, the scripture begins to make it very, very positive. As we go on through verse 2 through 7, we read this, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, which is a breath of fresh air. We rarely hear that, but we hear it now. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. 
And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images. They broke down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars which were above them he cut down, and the wooden images, the carved images, and the molded images he broke in pieces, and made dust of them and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And so he did in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali and all around, with axes. When he had broken down the altars and the wooden images, had beaten the carved images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel, he returned to Jerusalem. Now, uh, modern readers might think that passage sounds violent, but original readers would think that passage sounds very positive, and it is. He is a, a young person who seeks God. He is merely eight years old, but in seeking God, uh, he's wiser than a lot of people. And his reign begins very positively. He is doing what God wants. And you'll notice how many times King David was mentioned in that brief passage. David has been dead a long time. He is a distant ancestor of Josiah. But Josiah is taking his cue from his distant ancestor, who in the doctrine of the, the, uh, the, the fellowship of the saints is ministering to him, though he's dead. And so Josiah takes this great example, who he's never met, that ministers to him and emulates it, and he becomes a great man of God who is king in Israel. And good things begin to happen. We are told that during his reign, they rediscover the book of the law. Now, that may be the first five books of Moses. It may be a larger section of the scripture. Actually, it could be the scriptures in total up to that point. It appears that the scriptures were lost to the people of God. No one had been hearing them for likely around 60 years, as a guess. And under King Josiah, they rediscover it and say, you know, maybe we ought to read this, and they do. And King Josiah is struck by the word of God. It hits him in the heart. God is speaking to him through it. And having discovered again the word of God, which they were totally absent from, um, he, he breaks down before God and he institutes great revivals. And one of the things that he does is he calls all of the visible church, he calls all of the, the people of Israel to make a covenant with God, that they will follow God and his directions. Now that sounds very pious, and it does come from a pious heart, but think about that for just a second. Josiah makes the people make a covenant with God. How well does that work when you know how covenants work? In covenants, you have two different types. You have a covenant between equals... If, if Kevin and I were going to buy and sell a field, we would enter into a covenant about how we were going to do that, and Kevin and I would be equals. And so there would be certain rules governing that. Is God 
on an equal playing field with his people? The answer is clearly no. There is another kind of covenant, and that is a covenant between a greater and a lesser. And one of the absolute guarantees of how this covenant works is the lesser does not lay hold of the greater and say, you're in covenant with me. Uh, It's just not done. That doesn't happen. Rather, the greater lays hold of the lesser and says, this is the way the covenant will be. Josiah lays hold of the people and he says, we are going to make a covenant with God. Is God the greater under any sort of covenant obligation to acknowledge this covenant? Absolutely not. It, it can't be done. But Josiah wants it to be done, and he wants, to re- he wants the people to enter into spiritual revival. So he forces the covenant on them with all good intentions. And uh, if you read the, the, uh, the, the several chapters that have to do with Josiah in, in the books of Kings and Chronicles, he is zealous for God, he does great things, and uh, he reinstitutes the Passover, which they had not done up till now. But in Second Chronicles 35, in verse 18, we read this. There had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. And none of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this is a king, a ruler in the church of God, who wants to glorify God. He puts the Passover back in place rightly and gloriously, and the scripture speaks highly of him all the way through. When you get to the, the account of him in 2 Kings, uh, the, the writer of, of the book of Kings summarizes him in chapter 23 and verse 35. Uh, um, what now? Uh, It's 23 and verse 25, I thought. Um, Anyway, the scripture says he's a great guy. That's that's the living paraphrased version. But it sums up his his life, and it says he was a great king. He sought God's heart. He was great. But what comes next, and it's actually chapter 23, which is why I couldn't find it, Uh, What comes after these words is kind of stunning. The the summation is this. Now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So you would assume that the next words would be glorious. You would assume that the next words would be great victory, God acting, spiritual revival, which which he's been enforcing all of his his, uh, ministry. But the next words are this. Nevertheless, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his great wrath with which his anger was aroused against Judah because of all the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah from my sight, 
as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which I said, my name shall be there. Now, why? You have had a man reign for 32 years. He has done nothing but try to bring the people into revival. He has used all of his human powers to make that happen, but it really doesn't. The people still come under God's wrath, and there's a clue as to why in the passage I just read, it has to do with his grandfather Manasseh. Manasseh is kind of the Old Testament's version of a mafia Don and Hitler rolled into one. If there is a terrible king, a worse king among all of them, Manasseh would be it. And if you go to 2 Chronicles 33 and verse 1 through 9, uh, this is how Manasseh is described. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. But he did evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down. He raised up altars for the balls and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his sons to pass through the fire in the valley of the sons of Hinnom. He practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft and sorcery, and consulted mediums and spirits. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol of which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not again remove the foot of Israel from the land which I have appointed for your fathers, only if they are careful to do all that I have commanded them, according to the whole law and the statutes of Moses by the hand of Moses." The writer obviously does not want you to view Manasseh in a positive light. And elsewhere in the Kings and Chronicles, he is said to have, quote, filled Jerusalem with blood so that it flowed in every street. You would assume such a ruler, such an absolute disaster of a ruler, would not be liked or admired or emulated by anyone. But that's not what we read next. The last verse of this section is, So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. If you go to any bookstore and you look in the history section, who are the books about? Will you find books about great spiritual leaders who cared for the poor and really blessed their generations? Maybe. You might find a few of those, because they do get written. 
But if you look in the history sections, most of the books about history are about people who would like to kill you, and likely would have if you had known them. Almost all the books in the history sections are about violent, oppressive, self-centered people who made a name for themselves and their generation, but honestly are really, really wicked people, and that's the books that sell. There's a reason you find those books there. It's because fallen human humanity looks at the violent, looks at the self-centered, looks at the man who will fill Jerusalem with blood, the man who has the audacity to put idols in the temple of God and to work such crass evil in front of people, the flesh looks at them and says, wow, that's impressive. Secretly, the flesh wants to be like them. A lot of human beings are nice people, not because they're nice people, it's they're afraid they'll get hurt if they follow these alpha wicked people. But they read their stories and they admire them, they think about them, that is who their heroes are. And that is what Manasseh was to God's people. He was audacious, he was violent, he did things that no one would imagine anyone doing in public, and the people loved him. Manasseh seduced their heart. They followed him in his wickedness. He empowered them in it. Again, there is no king in all of the the Old Testament that is as vile as Manasseh. And unfortunately, he rules longer than any other king. But it might surprise you to know that this is not the end of Manasseh's story. Manasseh actually uh, will be in heaven. You will meet him. He becomes a faithful believer, believe it or not. The account is in 2 Chronicles 33, verse 10 through 19. And there we read this. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the captivity of the army of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze fetters, and carried him off to Babylon. Now when he was in affliction, he implored the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him, And he received his entreaty, heard his supplication, and brought him back to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. So effectively, Hitler has converted. After this, he built a wall outside the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, as far as the entrance of the fish gate. And it enclosed Ophel, and he raised it to a very great height. Then he put military captains in all the fortified cities of Judah. He took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he cast them out of the city. He also repaired the altar of the Lord, sacrificed peace offerings and thank offerings on it, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. So 
in the second act of Manasseh's reign, God got a hold of him, and he looks about like his grandson. He becomes a reformer. He, he desires to see the visible church of God reformed, and he does all that stuff. But the people loved old Manasseh. Old Manasseh had seduced their heart. And as we get to the end of the history books, the writers will say, now the people were carried off to Babylon because of all their great sins and wickedness in what Manasseh had seduced them into. There's a couple references where his name comes up. Which means Manasseh, repentant man, Manasseh, the reformer, Manasseh, your brother in Christ, Manasseh, who will live forever, couldn't undo what he had done. And he tried his darndest. But the people loved the bad boy. They loved the villain. They loved the audacious. They didn't love the reformer. Manasseh could touch their heart for wickedness, he couldn't touch their heart for righteousness. And when his grandson Josiah ascends the throne two years later, it's quite possible that Manasseh has been a role model for him. He has seen the ministry of his grandfather. He takes it up. Manasseh loved God. I'm going to love God. I'm going to reform the church of God. But they couldn't reform God's church. The good kings couldn't touch people's hearts. And the good kings weren't always wise. Josiah, arguably one of the best kings, perhaps second only to David, uh, the end of his life is detailed in 2 Chronicles chapter 35, verse 20 through 27, where we read this. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, king of Egypt, came up to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates, and Josiah went out against him. But he sent messengers to him, saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised himself so that he might fight with him, and did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God. So he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. His servants therefore took him out of that chariot and put him in a second chariot that he had, so that they brought him to Jerusalem. So he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his fathers, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Now, keep in mind, the scriptures present him as a very good and godly man who uh, really is, is admirable. But the last act of his life is he's bullheaded. He doesn't have to go into this battle, but the Egyptians have the audacity to be crossing his territory. He refuses to back down, 
the writer tells us God was communicating to him through the king of Egypt, but Josiah unwisely fought him and died. So even when you have uh, good men, reforming men as your kings, uh, they may make bad decisions. And bad decisions come with consequences. Now after Josiah's life, how much more of the history books are left? The answer is in Chronicles, one chapter. And in Kings, two chapters. We are right next to the carrying away to Babylon. It happens within a generation. One chapter. But in Josiah's ministry, it would have looked like a revival was breaking out in the seams. It would look like everyone was turning back to God. It would look like everyone was becoming faithful. They were all seeking God. But the history books again and again say their hearts had been seduced by Manasseh. Internally, they never changed. Even though outwardly they practiced religion, inwardly their hearts were seduced. And what's after Josiah is one chapter. And then comes the end. Our psalmist is all about this sort of thing. If you look at Psalm 146, the psalmist in the first verse, the first half of the verse, says hallelujah, or if you translate that into English, he says praise the Lord. It is a call to all men everywhere who is hearing the psalm. The psalmist wants you to praise the Lord. He doesn't call you to praise any man or any human institution. He doesn't call you to praise any human philosophy. The very first words of our our psalm of worship is, Hallelujah, all of you who are hearing me, I'm calling you to praise the Lord. And then right after that, in verse 1 and going into verse 2, the psalmist doesn't want to be a hypocrite. He's calling on the world to praise the Lord, and he writes, Praise the Lord, O my soul. I'm now talking to myself, and I'm calling on my soul, my, my living essence, who I am. Everything that I am is incorporated into the word soul. Soul, praise the Lord. While I live, I will praise the Lord, the psalmist says. I have chosen to make my life a matter of praising the Lord my God. If I'm going to to praise the Lord with all my life, throughout all my life, with my soul, there's really nothing left out of that. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. So if there is a me, whether in this life or the next, if there is a me in any sense that me will be praising the Lord. That's what I'm dedicating myself to do. That's what I feel called to do. God is to be praised. Who is it that you praise? I mean, really. Not who do you flatter, but who do you honestly, from your heart, with all integrity, praise? Well, the answer is is fairly self-evident. You praise 
those whom you trust in, whom you rely upon, whom you feel dependent upon, and whom you believe are beneficial. Real praise comes from real gratitude. And the psalmist has called on all the world to praise the Lord. He's dedicated himself to praising the Lord in, in uh, all of his life, no matter where that is. And then he turns to the concept of kings and actually human beings in general. In verse 3 and 4, we read this. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. In verse 4, the commentators of the Geneva Bible interpreted the plans of the ruler as being wicked plans. They interpreted the king's plots are what's being talked about. And honestly, who can blame them? This is the note. As their vain opinions, whereby they flattered themselves and so imagined wicked enterprises. They looked at verse 4 and said, God's saying their plans will come to naught. That's great, because rulers of men... They're always involved in wicked plots. They're always involved in being predatorial. God is bringing their activities to nothing. But in the context of the psalm, I have to respectfully disagree with my Puritan brothers in Geneva. It doesn't read like the psalmist is telling us wicked men will have all of their schemes come to an end. That Manasseh repented and his wicked schemes didn't come to an end. Um, It's the righteous, it's the godly, it's the good. When they die in this world, most of the time, all the good they had intended, all their plans, all their hopes for the future, most of the time crumble. Now, this is not me telling you not to plan for the future or to build for tomorrow. This is simply talking about what normally happens in the world. A godly man whom you can really trust and depend upon, who uses his power for good, when he dies, what normally happens next? He is succeeded by someone else who is not even half the man he is, who is a normal, wicked man, and he undoes every good thing the righteous man wanted to do. And so the psalm is not telling us not to trust in wicked princes or wicked sons of men. It's telling us not to trust in righteous ones. Don't put your hope, your dependence, your your desire for salvation in this world or the next in a human being who has power to help you Because he actually doesn't. He is frail. He is feeble. And above all that, God highlights he is finite. Let him draw his last breath. And where will your hopes be then? And the psalmist focuses on the king because he uses the word princes. Princes is a a general term for rulers. But he doesn't just speak of them. 
He says, don't put your hope in princes or in the Son of Man. And you will notice in your, your translations, Son of Man is not capitalized. The Lord Jesus Christ took the title, the Son of Man, but he was taking it from Daniel. In Daniel, there is one like a Son of Man who is divine, and Christ was saying, that's me, that's who I am. But when the term is used here, it's talking about anyone who is born of a human mother, a normal, typical person who, in fact, could be a great guy. It's not likely, but it's possible. Don't put your trust in good princes. Don't put your trust in anyone who is a typical person. Even if they are converted, even if they are godly, don't put your trust in them. The psalmist is very blunt. He says, in princes or in sons of men, there is no help. None. You imagine there may be. You look for a great hero to come and change the world. You look for a a King Arthur to arise and and bring about the salvation of peace. You look for uh, the great hero to undo everything. And the Psalms say there is no one like that who is a typical son of man. Not even the good or the godly. Instead, the psalmist now contrasts men like that with the Lord. And in verse 5, he bluntly says, Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. He is making a contrast. We can worship heroes. We can look for a human savior. Or we can trust in the Lord our God. It is an either-or situation. You can't do both. And the psalmist is calling us to look to God, the Lord, put your hopes in Him. Which is actually what Josiah and Manasseh were doing. They were looking to God, they were trusting in God, and their hope, their faith will be rewarded. You will see Josiah in heaven. You will see Manasseh in heaven. But the people uh, that they tried to reform, most of them you won't. They did not look for hope in God. They might have looked if they were the very few who honestly uh, were troubled but not touched by the Spirit. They may have looked at Manasseh or they may have looked at Josiah and said, They're going to turn things around. But their hope should have been in Josiah's God, not Josiah. Their hope should have been in Manasseh's God who shattered him, humbled him, and in absolutely destroying him, gave him eternal life. But not in Manasseh. The psalmist says, trust in the Lord alone. And then he begins to give us reasons why. In verse 6a, he is, quote, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. So why would you trust in the Lord your God and not in a prince? Well, everything you see, everything you touch, everything you hear, 
Um, God made it all. The psalmist is an unapologetic creationist. He has the audacity to say, if you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can smell it, God created it. And he uses creationism in a very concrete, straightforward way. And in fact, you find references to God creating the world all the way through Scripture. The psalmist says, why would you trust in a prince? God made everything. And then he points beyond that to God is always faithful to his covenants. Verse Uh, 6 tells us he created. There's a comma there. The sentence goes on. Um, It's a semicolon. Who keeps truth forever. The word truth is a covenantal word. It means a promise and a covenant. If God makes a covenantal promise, God will never go back on it. God is not like human politicians. You may have noticed that during elections, human politicians make you promises and then they don't happen. Well, God always keeps his promise. If God were on the campaign trail and he made a promise, that would happen next. Because that's who God is in his character. God always keeps his word unlike human princes. And the psalmist directs us to the purposes of God. What is God wanting to do in the world? Well, that is in the next several verses, beginning at verse 7. Who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord gives freedom to the prisoners, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind, the Lord raises those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, the Lord watches over the strangers, he relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. Now, in almost every commentary you turn to on this passage, they will be very careful to say, now, that doesn't mean these people don't exist. God couldn't be intending to help the oppressed if there weren't any. God couldn't open the eyes of the blind if they didn't exist. Widows, orphans, the righteous, all of these people are suffering in this world, and any minister worth his salt wants you to know that. And again, turning to our friends in Geneva, uh, this is their note upon the passage. Uh, Though he visit them by affliction, hunger, imprisonment, and such like, yet his fatherly love and pity never faileth them, Yea, rather to these, they are signs of his love. That's good wisdom to keep in mind. But God is working in the world to do all those things. And you may have noticed your fellow human being doesn't put those things real high on the list. And when they become powerful, they put them even lower on the list. If you want somebody who cares about the oppressed... Don't turn to the communist, turn to God. If you want somebody who will care for the widow and the orphan, don't look to a political solution, look to God. Trust in the Lord, not in a son of man. Trust in the Lord, not in a prince. These are the things he wants to do. 
He is blessing the righteous and he loves them. And he will turn the way of the wicked upside down. The Hebrew actually, it's a very picturesque word. It pictures God literally toying with the wicked. The wicked are laying out a a path that they intend to go on, and God is messing with them. He is constantly causing it to turn. And so they turn, and they end up twisted. They end up upside down. At the end of their life, they're really frustrated, and God's going, ha, 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 because he is frustrating the way of the wicked. That is what God wants to do. And the psalmist calls us to look at his purposes and trust in him. The Lord will reign forever. The end of our psalm says, The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. Manasseh reigned 55 years, the longest reign of any king of Israel, and for half of that he was a reformer, but he died. Josiah reigned for 32 years. He was a godly man. His every desire was to do good, but he died. Death comes for every man because every man is finite. That hero you want to emulate, that man you think who is so important, he will be dust by the end of the century. He will be gone and history will basically forget him. But not so God. God existed before time. He existed before any natural law was created. God will exist for eternity, and there will never be a moment where God says, you know, I think I'll give my throne to a man. God will always rule. He will always reign. There is nothing his outstretched hand cannot do, and his heart is to bless the righteous, care for the poor, defend the fatherless, mess with the wicked and destroy them, That is the king that is going to reign forever. No son of man, even a good one, is of such a nature as to receive our dependence. Don't trust in man, trust in God. Again, the last time we shall turn to them, but the men of Geneva have this to say. Why is this psalm written by the Spirit? Well, that God may have the whole praise, wherein he forbiddeth all vain confidence, showing that the nature we, of ourselves is more inclined to put our trust in creatures than in, the, in God the Creator. Other Puritans warned us our heartbeats are just one away from idolatry. And this is one of our greatest idolatries. In fact, we commit it, and we don't even feel guilty. We worship heroes. We worship sons of men. We look to them to be the answer, and they are frail, feeble, and finite. They will be dead, and everything they intended to do will fall apart. If it's wickedness, may God be merciful, and it fall apart. But if they are righteous, this is a wicked world. It will likely fall apart. No human being is worth your faith, your trust, or to be idolized. Have you ever considered that word? 
we, we throw it about so, so glibly. Oh, he's my idol. Did you hear what you said? He is my idol. She is my idol. It's not metaphorical, and you're not speaking poetically. You are confessing to idolatry, even if the person is good. Now, there is in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, one king who is not part of this. There is one king described in the Hebrew who you can worship, who you can trust in, who you can lay all your dependence on, and he won't fail you. And he is, in fact, human, although he is a little more. When you turn to the book of Jeremiah, you have a promise made in chapter 33 where the Spirit of God takes up the promise that was made to David. David was told, now if your sons follow me, you will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. Yeah, that turned out well. David's sons absolutely turned away from the Lord, and ultimately David's line on the throne of Jerusalem comes to an end when the Babylonians carry everybody away. But the prophet Jeremiah, by the Spirit, takes up that promise, and like covenants work, the greater can make the covenant more gracious That's exactly what happens here. In Jeremiah 33, and beginning at verse 14, we read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will perform that good thing which I have promised to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the earth, In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell dwell in safety. And this is the name by which uh, he will be called, that she will be called, because it's talking about uh, Jerusalem, the Lord our righteousness. So the city of Jerusalem is going to be dedicated to this branch. He is going to rule, and everything about the city is going to say, the Lord our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor shall the priests, the Levites, lack a man to offer burnt offerings before me, to kindle grain offerings, and to sacrifice continually. So the prophet says, this is the promise to David, but it's been expanded. There is now no longer a condition to it. I will bring about the branch... David will never again lack a king on the throne of Jerusalem because the branch will be eternal king and also the priests will never lack again for a priest for the same reason. So in this this prophecy, you have the amazing grace of God saying, I will raise up a king, he won't die, he will reign on the throne forever, and he will also be the priest forever, so you will never again lack for a king or a priest you can depend upon. Now, who is this king in the Old Testament? The answer is, it's Jesus Christ of Nazareth. God promises in the morass of human existence 
in this terrible uh, prison we call human society, I will raise up a king, him will be righteousness. Jerusalem will talk about him in every nook and cranny you look and will point you to the Lord our righteousness. And by the way, he'll be eternal priest. If you are looking for a king to serve, if you're looking for a hero to have, if you are looking for someone's banner to stand under, stand under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't stand under the banner of any man, even if he be righteous and good. Because he is fallible, he is frail, and he is finite. We have, as Carmen and I were talking in the car, many, many examples of such men. Men who worked godly ministry, but who truly let down the church of God in the end. The list is long. The number of heroes that have fallen are many. And I have known men who, when they have fallen, have said, how can this happen? I have based my entire life and Christian witness around this man, and he has been so good, and he had been. But he was human. He was subject to sin. He was unwise. And ultimately, he died. How can this happen? Well, it happens because God doesn't want you to put your trust in men. Everything about the Spirit of God is to point you to Jesus Christ. Him you shall worship. Him you shall trust. There is no man who will save us, but the one who is also God.